Hello, and welcome to Tales from Imperial Russia, with Dr. James White. Episode 16, Insulting the Tsar, the tale of Vasily Zverev. Staggering back from a drunken debauch in the ancient city of Narva, the former carpenter Vasily Zverev finally made his way back to the workers' barracks of the Kreenholm cotton-spinning factory, just a few miles upriver from the fortress town. He was one of around 10,000 workers who called the massive factory complex, one of Europe's largest, home. Zverev was nothing unique. Across the Russian Empire in the early 20th century, the booming peasant population, finding land in short supply, regularly dispatched their sons across great distances to industrial hubs like St. Petersburg or Moscow to earn an extra crust of bread. Their lives were rarely easy, working long hours in cramped and comfortless conditions. Their barracks were often packed and dirt-infested. For the 26-year-old Zverev, it was probably no different. Conditions at the Kreenholm plant were sufficiently bad to have triggered two violent strikes in 1872 and 1882, on both occasions crushed by Imperial infantry. But he had some reasons to be thankful. First, his migration had only taken him some 90 kilometres north of his home village of Yelma. Second, he shared his barracks with a couple of old acquaintances from his hamlet, the cousins Fyodor and Semyon Shmarakov. And third, on this day, the 23rd of November, 1908, Zverev had found enough free time to go drinking in the big city. Back in the factory barracks, Zverev decided to share his woes and drink with the Shmarakovs. At home, he bemoaned he had a large family, a father, a mother, two brothers, one of whom had four children, a wife, and a newly born daughter. But his parents lacked the land to provide each son with a domicile of their own. Having come out of the army, Zverev returned to Yelma and found no provision for him, his wife, or child. This, we may assume, is what drove him to join the proletarian mass at the Kreemholm plant. Zverev then put a question to Semyon Shmurakov. Would he parcel off some of his own land for the Zverevs? Shmurakov refused and advised his sotted associate to apply to the village commune, which usually dealt with land allocation. This enraged Zverev, who was by his own admission drunk to the point of senselessness. That's the kind of law we have here he pronounced bitterly. I was on service and got put into the reserves, but there's nowhere to build a house. Damn the law and damn the emperor. What kind of emperor is Nikolashka? Taken aback by the use of an infantilizing pet name to refer to Nicholas II, Fyodor Shmurakov protested. What kind of defenders of the emperor are we if we insult him so? He threatened to report any further outbursts to the authorities, but the adult Zverev was in no mood to back down. Fuck you, and the Emperor too. 
It was to a mighty hangover that Zverev woke up, since Shmurakov fulfilled his threat. The insult to the person of the Emperor was reported to the police, and Zverev found himself in court on charges of Les Majestés. On the 20th of March 1909, Zverev was found guilty and sentenced to one month in police custody. A relatively light sentence, to be sure, but who knows how Zverev's family survived with the main breadwinner deprived of a month's wages. Even in his small corner of the Russian Empire, soon to become the borderland between the Soviet Union and independent Estonia, Zverev was not alone in indulging in verbal assaults against Russia's august imperial leader. In 1910, the peasant Semyon Bondarev found himself hauled before a judge for having screamed, I'll fuck the Tsar in the arse, in the sacred environs of the Puktitsa convent in eastern Estland. In the small town of Paida in 1912, the Estonian Richard Reichmann, an apprentice tinsmith, was arrested not once, but twice in 1912, once for whacking a portrait of Nicholas II five times with a billiards cue, and again for boasting about the incident in a tavern. Similarly, the Vasknava farmhand Fyodor Trelin had, on the second day of a wedding feast, allegedly stumbled up to an image of the sovereign and muttered, You need your eyes gouging out although he was found innocent at trial for lack of evidence. Zverev, Bondolev and Ryman thus joined the ranks of tens of thousands of people who, in the course of more than two centuries, had fallen afoul of the Russian Empire's Les Majesté laws. Between 1878 and 1884, some 6,858 people were found culpable of the crime, in 1911 alone, at least 1,168 individuals were given custodial sentences for insulting the Tsar. And keep in mind that these were only the instances that made it to trial. But what, if anything, do these slanders tell us, both about the people who uttered them and the states that forbade them? Some historians hold that these were nothing more than vodka-fueled outbursts that provide insight only into the Russian language's incredibly rich lexicon of unspeakable expletives. Others, though, have been more circumspect, suggesting that this outlawed invective may provide the key to a different and rather darker understanding of the political imagination of the empire's lower social orders. Generally, it is believed that the peasantry, at least, held the emperor in very high regard, both as God's anointed ruler and as their ultimate protector. That they were subject to despotism and injustice was not the emperor's fault, but rather that of cruel, noble landowners who warped the Tsar's good intentions for their own benefit. But do these thousands of angry profanities tell a different story? A story of extreme and even violent disdain towards both imperial persons and the regime they headed, bottled up only by the heavy hand of the police and the army? To try and answer this question, let us go back to the beginning of the 18th century, 
and the reign of Peter the Great. No doubt verbal and physical insults to the Tsar had been treated as a crime before Peter, but it was only in 1715 that they were firmly established on the statute book and prosecuted with any kind of rigour. Here, Les Majestés was included in the category of a capital crime, to be treated in the same vein as treason, rebellion and regicide. The number of actions held to denigrate the Emperor was truly staggering. It included writing the Emperor's name out wrongly when copying down imperial edicts, throwing away pieces of paper on which the Emperor's name was written, telling stories involving the Tsar in either a positive or negative role, discussing the age or physical condition of the Emperor, failing to toast to the health of the Tsar, not removing one's hat when an imperial law was read out in public, and slighting the image of the Emperor, whether in painting, sculpture or on coins. A few examples would demonstrate not only the sheer breadth of this crime, but also the utmost brutality with which it was punished. In 1744, Sergeant Mikhail Pervov was beaten with an out, had his nostrils slit and was exiled to hard labour in Siberia. His crime was telling a fairy tale wherein an unnamed Tsar was saved from death by a heroic thief. Dragged before the Imperial Inquisition in 1739 was the Siberian priest Mikhail. He had brashly declared that he feared no one besides God and thus was charged with refusal to accept the Tsar's authority. When Empress Anna came to the throne in 1730, not everyone was content with being ruled by a woman. The peasant Timofey Korniev said as much, for which his tongue was cut out and what was left of him was sent to the border with the Chinese Empire. A Swedish prisoner of war by the name of Johan inspected in 1718 a painting of the Battle of Potava, a major Russian victory over Swedish forces in the Great Northern War. He made the lamentable error of pointing out that Peter the Great had worn boots during the engagement, rather than stockings and slippers, as the artist had portrayed. For this most unforgivable transgression, he was punished harshly. As even officials at the time were aware, many of these assaults on the Tsar's honour were innocuous, to say the least. So why then the immensely grim retributions? In effect, the ideology of monarchical government deemed it necessary. The Tsar was a ruler chosen by God. His name, his person, his titles, his image, these were all sacrosanct, all holy. To denigrate the emperor was to denigrate not only his person, but also the Russian state and the very God that had installed and protected the emperor. Thus, even the smallest quip, even the most harmless derision, even the mildest satire, was an assault on the most sacred values, underpinning and undergirding the legitimacy of the emperor and his state. Furthermore, for all the rationalisation and modernisation brought in by Peter the Great and some of his successors, 
popular worldviews in the 18th century remained distinctly magical. In such a view, the word, especially its written variant, had the potential to inflict real physical harm, meaning that prosecuting insults against the Tsar was on much the same plane as prosecuting real efforts to kill or otherwise hurt the emperor. Finally, in the understanding of most, the emperor's person was not separate in any way from the conception of the state. To most, the emperor was the state, and the state was the emperor. Thus, to calumny the sovereign was to calumny the Russian Empire itself, an act akin to treason. This was not uniquely Russian. While the British newspapers had a lively and nearly unrestricted capacity to subject their monarchs to the most scandalous ribaldry, elsewhere in Europe, the law defended almost zealously the person of the monarch, and for exactly the same reasons. What may be uniquely Russian was how long the law of 1715 and its vicious sanctions endured. Supposedly enlightened monarchs like Catherine the Great and Alexander I left it virtually untouched. In the reign of the latter, in 1819, an underage boy called Biryukov was selling some wine to a priest in the town of Kozelsk. The child asked for a price the holy man was unwilling to pay, since the emperor had proclaimed a price limit on alcohol. The boy channelled his dissatisfaction by besmirching the emperor, for which he was whipped with a knout and exiled. Clemency was only shown three years later, when, at the behest of the boy's mother, Emperor Alexander issued an imperial pardon. In the reign of Nicholas I, 1825-1855, when the Russian law was codified to a considerable extent, Les Majestés was assigned a series of set punishments. Those who consciously sought to disparage the majesty of the emperor could expect six to eight years exile in Siberia, while those who unintentionally trampled on the Tsar's honour got six months to a year of imprisonment. Witnesses who failed to report these outrages could be banged up for three weeks to three months. This of course did not help anyone who, in a moment of anger or passion, invoked the name of the ruler. Take the nobleman Ivan Yakimovsky, who in 1841 was smoking in a fellow noble's manor house. The mistress of the house took exception to his malodorous habit and thus provoked an argument, in which Yakimovsky blurted out, I'm so angry that if the emperor himself said anything to me, I'd smack him in the face. For this, he was deprived of his noble rank and dispatched for labour in the Siberian wastes. The punishment for consciously insulting the Tsar, eight years of exile and labour, remained in place until the very end of the imperial regime, not changing even in the 1903 criminal code. What did change was twofold. First, the law, as it stood both in 1885 and 1903, made increased allowances for people who invoked the sovereign's name in a fit of drunkenness, 
specifying relatively brief periods of police custody. This is the reason some historians have concluded that nearly every single instance of Les Majestés that made it to court produced a defence of drunkenness. Second, the trial by a jury system created by the great reforms of Alexander II in the 1860s and 1870s veered towards sympathy and leniency for the accused. As the highly regarded lawyer Anatoly Korny told one government minister in 1879, the time and energy of the courts was being used to prosecute drunks who had no real intent of cursing the emperor. He may have had in mind cases like that of Josef Hansel, an Austrian citizen living and working in the Don Cossack territory. On the 12th of November 1875, Hansel, a landlord, had gotten into an intoxicated quarrel with one of his tenants. The tenant had declared to Hansel that everyone in the country was equal and loyalty was owed only to the throne and the fatherland. Hansel had jabbered, Fuck your throne and fatherland. Fortunately for Hansel, the claim that he was mindlessly drunk persuaded the court to let him off without punishment. So, what does all this tale of heinous utterances and equally heinous retributions tell us? Perhaps that we might agree with all the various conclusions raised by earlier historians. On the one hand, it never took much to produce prosecutions against Les Majestés, given the vast scope of the crime. Some of these were bound to be people who, in the midst of acrimonious and alcoholic arguments, took the Tsar's name in vain, much as people throughout history have blasphemed their most sacred deities in moments of heat and pressure. Doing so could at the very least convey the depths of the anger felt, and might perhaps shock an antagonist into silence. The likelihood of intending a real insult against the Tsar or his regime in these cases was slight. Such seems to be the case of the hero of our tale, Vasily Zverev, who, sledgehammered by both drink and socio-economic pressures, erupted in a stream of cuss. But, on the other hand, there are other valid interpretations. For one, the sheer scale of these prosecutions, a pale reflection of the real number of cases, points to the existence of a subculture of satire, banter and caricature among Russians about their leaders, one that, while strictly regulated and punished, may have been as strong as in countries with less strenuous censorship. Indeed, many instances do point to broader political dissatisfaction, whether with particular leaders or particular policies. Scholars have noted that insults against the emperor were frequently linked to deeply unpopular policies, such as conscription, the state's monopoly on selling vodka, and forcing liberated serfs to pay off the cost of their land over decades. So while many in the empire's lower orders might indeed subscribe to naive monarchism 
the idea of a good czar against malignant advisers. This did not necessarily monopolise the ideas that peasants, townsmen and other subjugated groups had about their rulers and the world around them. Here too, our hero Vasily Zverev seems to fit, since his defamatory remarks were a result of broad dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction with conscription, dissatisfaction with a lack of land among peasant communities, maybe even dissatisfaction with working conditions in an early 20th century industrial plant. These insults also might allow us to chart the discreditation of the imperial government in the early 20th century, as the pioneering Russian historian Boris Klanitsky has done, examining hundreds of letters written by soldiers suffering and dying on the front of the First World War. When Nicholas II took on personal command over the Russian armies in 1915, he made himself the scapegoat for every failure the Russian armies encountered, and perhaps every death they suffered. This was the case for the peasant Stefan Karlev, arrested for lamenting that the blood of his dead soldier brother was on Nicholas II's hands. Nicholas's wife Alexandra was no better, already unjustly impugned for her alleged loyalty to Germany and an entirely fictional affair with a notorious soothsayer Rasputin. Here the imperial family could do almost nothing right. When the empress and her daughters donned the uniforms of nurses and cared for wounded soldiers, they did so to demonstrate their commitment to the fatherland, their solicitude for the injured and their closeness to the people. They did not account for the fact that the reputation of nurses, initially seen as sainted angels, plummeted among the troops. He accused these sisters of mercy of debaucherous orgies with officers, laziness and prostitution. Nurses became the subject of widely distributed illegal pornography, such as one image entitled First Aid, depicting a long line of fully erect Russian soldiers waiting for sexual services in front of a Red Cross tent. Thus, the Romanov family's efforts to associate its women with nurses helped desacralize the monarchy, casting dirt and disgrace on its womenfolk. This desacralization had an effect on the home front too, on the 12th of September 1915, the retired soldier Dmitry Pustotin got into a heated argument with the husband and wife duo Pyotr and Vera Menchukov. In an effort to win the squabble, Pustotin pointed to his military service and that he had shed blood for the Tsar. Pyotr Menchukov then grabbed his genitals, bellowing, here I have the Tsar, here's what you spilt blood for. His wife then lifted her dress to reveal what was underneath. And here's the Tsarina. Ultimately, it is certainly true that the monarchy fell so rapidly in 1917 
because very few Russians felt any degree of respect, esteem or duty to their God-anointed ruler. The empire's strict rules of less majesté failed. Under the assault of Nicholas II's relentless incompetence, these strictures were all but useless in protecting the honour, majesty and holiness of the autocracy. If anything, they may have made the regime seem even more arbitrary, even more unjust. However, the Russians did not trade in the Tsar for a more lenient regime. In just over a decade, an ill-advised joke, comment or disagreement with Stalin or his policies was almost the equivalent of a one-way ticket to the Gulag. But this, dear friends, is a tale for another time.